welcome everyone. We're so pleased to see you here this evening. Um, I'm Shanti Norris. I'm co-founder and director of Smith Center. And it is my great pleasure, uh, as it always is when we have our co-founder Michael Lerner here for a talk. I, I can say um, without question that we are all in for a real treat and inspiring evening. So uh, before I introduce Michael, who for many of you needs no introduction, but for some of you might, so we are going to introduce Michael. Before I introduce Michael, I'm going to introduce our new full-time program director here. And before I do that, I'm going to say just a couple of words about this show. So the Alchemical Vessel Show is, um, as somebody just said, I, I think this is the best show we've ever done. We're very proud of this show. You know, the gallery here uh, serves as a healing arts gallery. We're about community. We're about using the arts to understand who we are, to deepen our lives, to wake ourselves up to invoke uh, the power of healing inside all of us. And so this sh uh, particular show is something that we created this year as part of our community of artists in the greater Washington, D.C. community. So in brief, I will simply say about alchemical vessels that in a certain sense, and this will all refer to Michael's talk, actually, in just a few moments. So. Um, in a certain sense, I, I think we see Smith Center as a vessel for healing. And by vessel, I use that word in a broad sense, as a container, as a womb, as a sacred space, as a healing space. That's a necessary component um, for healing or a profoundly useful component for us to step into this space, whether the space is created by a circle of friends, or a building, or a temple, or an outside theater, um, or a bowl in this case, a space in which healing and transformation can take place. And so we invited 125 of the best visual artists in the Washington DC area to participate uh, in this exhibit. And we gave them all a, a bowl. I think there's a blank, a blank bowl somewhere here on the desk. Um, and brought them in and did a, a panel with some healers and talked about sacred space and alchemy. And this is what everybody created, sort of in community, but in their individual studios. So um, I invite you to take a look at all the different versions of healing uh, in the shape of a bowl or a vessel. So now let me introduce our new, I think she's been here four or five months, uh, full-time program director. Uh, many of you know Meredith, who is our program director here for a number of years, and she's been joined by Adrian Dern. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. There's two Adrians here, so for a second I... Um, and let me introduce Adrian uh, to introduce Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shanti. And um, I'm really also very pleased to welcome all of you here tonight. Um, and before I do introduce Michael, since I am the new program director, just want to take a minute to tell you about some of our upcoming programs because they may be of interest to you. 
Um, first of all, on May 16th, that's a Thursday night, we're going to have a, um, somebody here to talk about lymphedema. And it's a really important topic for people with cancer. And I think it's going to be a great evening, not just for the educational aspects, but also to bring people together who have this condition, because it can be a little bit isolating and a chance to meet other people and kind of share their own tips and ideas will be very, very helpful. Um, two days later, on um, <clears throat> excuse me, Saturday, May 18th, we're offering what I think is a really unique uh, creativity session. It's called the Radiant Heart of Summer with Qigong and Poetry. And we, ha we do offer Qigong and we have taught poetry classes here, but this is the first time that we're bringing the two together. And um, from what I understand, I think that workshop will have some very, very special powers. So if you're interested in that, we'd love to have you sign up. And then our next Living Well with Cancer one-day retreat takes place on Saturday, June 1st. And I think for those, for people who are fairly new in their cancer journey, this one-day retreat really t turns out to be a very positive step um, for a greater understanding and what, what does it mean, what does the cancer diagnosis mean in their lives. And people leave at the end of the day, I think very, very buoyant and with a lot of information and having had a great experience. So. Um, if you know somebody um, or you yourself has been recently diagnosed, we would love to have you join, join us for that. <clears throat> so these are really just a few highlights. We have lots of wonderful programs coming up. I have many program calendars available if anybody would like, like our full um, spring calendar. Happy to provide you with a, with a calendar. So now it is my privilege to um, introduce Michael Lerner. And um, as Shanti said, Michael, for some of you, really doesn't need an introduction. And I think you're here tonight because you've heard him speak before and you know the wisdom and the compassion that he brings to his talks, and that will be no different tonight. Um, but for some of you who haven't met or heard Michael before, I just want to tell you just a little bit about him. Um, I, th I think Shanti, Shanti mentioned that he is the co-founder and board chair of Smith Center. And uh, when Barbara Smith Coleman was first conceiving of Smith Center, um, she got tremendous support and wise counsel from Michael to create what was then Smith Farm, now Smith Center, and he's continued to help guide us closely ever since, and we're very, very grateful for that. He's also the co-founder and president of Commonweal in Bolinas, California, where along with Rachel Naomi Remen, he co-created the week-long residential retreats for people with cancer, um, also known as the Cancer Help Program. Uh, we've been very privileged to offer those retreats for 17 years, and in uh, Commonweal, I believe it's been more than 30 years which is quite astounding, and it just means that so many people, I believe, have really had their lives transformed by that experience. Um, Michael's also the author of Choices in Healing, which uh, remains one of the most useful resources for people living with cancer. And he has so many, many more achievements, but I think you came here to hear him, so I just <laughs> like to bring him up, and um, you'll see what, what you're in for. It's going to be great. Thank you. Thank you very much for those kind words. Um, and a special thanks to Shanti Norris, the executive director and visionary who has taken Barbara Smith Coleman's vision of an art and healing center and made it into a reality, transformed this building, led this work for 17 years. It's a great service. Thank you, Shanti, very much. Yeah. So um, I'm going to talk about love tonight, and I'll, I'll be on topic. But I'm. This is two things at once. 
it's a, a talk and it's a poetry reading. And it's a poetry reading because the talk can only talk about love. But poetry can bring you into the incantation of the experience of love. Uh, and um, I think most of us think about our lives. Um, if we ask ourselves what defines our lives, uh, I think it was St. Augustine who said we are defined by what we love. We are known by what we love. Um, and for most of us, our loves have brought us both incredible joy and great suffering. Um, can you all hear me? Okay. So I'm going to start by reading you a poem by Hafiz, who was, along with Rumi, one of the greatest Sufi poets. You know, we uh, often think of um, Iran and Afghanistan as, you know, um, as less evolved parts of the world. And trust me, uh, they knew stuff 1,500, 1,000 years ago that we're still learning. Um, this is by Hafiz. Light will someday split you open, even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny, is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely bust you wide open into an unfettered blooming new galaxy, even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. A life-giving radiance will come. The friend's gratuity, friend was the word they used for the divine, the friend's gratuity will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. From a sacred crevice in your body, a bow rises each night and shoots your soul into God. Behold the beautiful drunk singing one from the lunar vantage point of love. He is conducting the affairs of the whole universe while throwing wild parties in a treehouse on a limb in your heart. I don't know. It's Landinsky? Yeah, okay. Landinsky. He's, yeah. <clears throat> I'll read you another poem by Hafiz. I want both of us to start talking about this great love, as if you and I and the sun were all married and living in a tiny room, helping each other to cook, do the wash, weave and sew, care for our beautiful animals. We all leave each morning to labor on the earth's fields. No one does not lift a great pack. I want both of us to start singing like two traveling minstrels about this extraordinary existence we share, as if you and I and God 
were married and living in a tiny room. About 30 years ago, my life fell apart. I was working at this new center I'd started six years before called Commonweal. Uh, I'd had a vision of a place that would work on healing ourselves and caring for the earth. I struggled to make it work for six years, but at about the six-year point, my father developed cancer, my dog died, my marriage fell apart, uh, the board of Commonweal lost faith in me and thought I wouldn't be able to pull this off, uh, and everything was falling apart around me. And I went to a conference in Tarrytown, New York, and I met a stunningly beautiful young physician whose name was Dr. Sandra McClanahan. And um, Sandy uh, liked me and I liked her. And we fell in love. And she brought me down to uh, uh, Satchidananda Ashram, to Yogaville, and she introduced me to Swami Satchidananda. And Amrita, Dr. Sandra McClanahan, is here tonight, and I'm very grateful that she's here with us. So uh, uh, that's how I, that's how Integral Yoga saved my life. I fell in love, and uh, I was introduced uh, to the love that uh, Amrita has held all her life, and um, and Integral Yoga completely transformed me. Um, Many of you here, I know, have followed some path of integral yoga. I want to be clear that when I talk about integral yoga, I'm not just talking about Swami Satchidananda's integral yoga. I'm talking about the tradition, thousands and thousands of years old, of which he was one able exponent. Uh, but Sri Aurobindo, for example, who some of you know, also called his yoga integral yoga. And if you look up Sri Aurobindo in Wikipedia, they'll say that Satchidananda's yoga and Aurobindo's yoga have a great resemblance to each other. So uh, Aurobindo was one of the really profound, uh, you know, prophets of uh, the, the, the modern vision of what yoga could be. So I'm speaking not on behalf of a specific version of integral yoga, but about a tradition that goes back to the heart of the whole Hindu tradition, uh, back to the Bhagavad Gita, back to Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, um, and a tradition that um, has brought peace and coherence uh, to millions of people around the world for thousands of years. So it's been truth-tested for thousands of years as a way to find peace in the middle of life's struggle. And so, for me, integral yoga not only changed my life, and I honestly believe saved my life, but it gave me a perspective on life that has enabled me over the following 30 years to live through many forms of struggle with a certain equanimity uh, because uh, it taught me a way of being uh, that was profoundly useful to me. But I want to suggest to you that, particularly for us Westerners, that yoga alone is not enough. Meditation alone is not enough. There is a great Western tradition 
of mystical teaching that is equally profound, just as profound as the Eastern traditions. You know, Arnold Toynbee, the great historian, once said he thought the defining event of the 20th century might turn out to be the coming of the Dharma to the West. And what he meant by that is that of all the things that happened, nuclear war, or nuclear weapons, Hiroshima, two world wars, you know, technology and corporations taking over the world, degrading life, you could name many, many things that characterize the 20th century. But he thought that the defining event might well be the coming of the Dharma to the West. And what he meant by that was that the power of the Dharma, the power of the Buddha, the power of Krishna, the power of the Eastern wisdom traditions, was so potent that what those memes would do to Western culture would be a transformative thing. Now, we don't have to agree with him that it turned out to be the defining event, but it is absolutely clear that if you've been involved with mind, body, spirit, health for 30 or 40 years, you have seen a total transformation in the United States of the number of people who have found peace, either through the Buddha or through Krishna and the uh, yoga tradition, uh, and who have come to understand that these traditions, Buddhism and yoga, are operating manuals for the transformation of mind, body, and spirit consciousness that in many ways are cleaner operating manuals than the Western traditions are. That they have that perennial vision that as Satchitananda said, truth is one, paths are many. And at Satchitananda Ashram, his Light of Truth Universal Shrine has a single light coming up from the floor in the middle of the temple. It goes up to the ceiling and it arcs down into 12 altars for all the great religions and additional altars for all religions known and unknown and for atheism and, you know, uh, agnostic uh, visions as well. So the thing about the Hindu tradition was that it understood from the beginning that there was one light and that that light goes up and then according to the needs of different cultures around the world is translated by different prophets in different ways and comes down to us in these different ways according to our needs. Now we live in a period now whether you want to call it postmodern or whatever you want to call it where all of these traditions have diffused and where now rather than being born Hindu or Christian or Jewish or Islam or whatever we are, we are born into a world where we actually select. So that there's a fragmentation that takes place, and many of us put together different dimensions of this. But one of the traditions that is most congenial to this creation of our own maps of mind, body, spirit, consciousness is precisely yoga because it has this universality that was built into it, whereas in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, the mystics in those traditions had to hide their understanding of the oneness of everything in order not to, um, in order not to disrespect the uh, external version of the Western religions, which for Judaism held there was only one people, you know, for Christianity said that Christ is the only way. For Islam, you know, said that Muhammad was the other way. And the mystics in these traditions understand the same thing that the Hindu tradition was teaching, but they need to disguise it. Whereas the Hindu tradition was set up 
so as not to need to disguise it, and somehow took form at a time in human consciousness where there was not a need to create the disguises that the mystics and the other traditions needed in order to discover the same truth that the Hindu yoga tradition had arrived at. Now, let me say parenthetically, this is just a point of view. I'm not asking you to share it, but it's a widespread point of view. So, for example, there is a tradition in religious studies called the traditionalists, a group of people that started with René Guénon and Fritjof Schoen and people like that, uh, who started as Christians but through their studies actually became Sufis. And the Sufis are particularly interesting because of the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the great beauty of Islam is that Muhammad himself recognized that there were thousands of prophets and that these prophets suited different people in different ways. And so unlike Judaism, unlike Christianity, he took a further step back to that Hindu vision of all the different ways that we could discover the divine in our lives. Now, even the word divine in our lives may not work for some of you, because some of you may have a particularly or a, a, an entirely secular perspective or an entirely agnostic perspective. And I would say to you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Let me quote something here from the greatest Sufi mystic, a man named Ibn Arabi, who wrote the following, O oh, marvel, a garden amidst the flames, my heart has become capable of every form. It is a pasture for gazelles and a convent for Christian monks, a temple for idols and the pilgrim's Kaaba, the tables of the Torah and the book of the Koran. I follow the religion of love. Whatever way love's camels takes, that is my religion and my faith. That was Ibn Arabi, the greatest Sufi mystic. So for me, integral yoga and archetypal psychology broadly understood can symbolize the uh, Eastern and uh, the Western and the Eastern wisdom traditions and the paths that in the West and in the East people have taken toward individuation, to use Jung's term, self-actualization, and also toward deep intentional healing. And one of the things I want to say to those of you who are working with some kind of illness, there really is no difference between individualization and self-actualization and deep intentional healing. Somebody here actually is working with Larry Lashan, uh, one of the great um, uh, psychologists of, uh, of our time, who was one of the first people. He wrote a book called You Can Fight for Your Life and another one called Cancer as a Turning Point. Who's working with him? Yes, you're, you're working with him. Thanks. And um, so he's in his 90s now and still writing books. Uh, but um, Larry deeply understood. What did he say? His core message was that if you wanted to fight for your life with cancer, what mattered was that you find your own song in life. That was his metaphor. And that the people who found their own song in life, who found their own completely unique way of being, were energized in a way that was not good for the further development of the tumor, that it, it brought to life uh, 
those forces within us that energized us in such a way that if there was a chance to either slow the development of the tumor or stabilize it or reverse it in some instances or prevent recurrence, that this process of finding our own song, finding our own dharma, finding our own path to the uh, unfolding of our fate line, whatever you want to call it, that sense, that vision, that we are each born with a destiny, that we are, uh, in, uh, in, in James Hillman's words, he calls uh, archetypal psychology an acorn theory of psychology, that we are born as acorns and within us is something that wants to unfold. And if we get in the way of that, for some reason, it is harmful to us. There's a saying, better your own dharma badly lived than somebody else's dharma well lived. Uh, so the point is that to somehow find your way to live your own dharma, to live your own individuation, to live that, that process, is the key to our lives, to become what we were put here to be. And there is a faith in the yoga tradition uh, and in archetypal psychology that that story we tell ourselves of, of our, our inbuilt potential, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, is a real story that there's something true to that, and that if we follow that, rather than follow what other people tell us we should be, if we follow that, that is the key to our happiness, that is the key to our sense of purpose, and at the end of our lives, we will die in the greatest peace if that's the path we follow. And I particularly want to talk about three themes that I've found in both integral yoga and in uh, archetypal psychology, though not as explicitly in archetypal psychology, but I'll suggest if you look at archetypal psychology broadly, not just referring to James Hillman and Thomas Moore and the people who founded it as a post-Jungian dispensation, Hillman said he didn't want to found a school of psychology, but we can say he founded or contributed to a field a uh, very fertile, extraordinary field of post-Jungian psychology. And I've been immersed in it for the last nine months because just as integral yoga saved my life uh, 30 years ago, at this point in my life, facing the struggles and challenges I face now, I needed something different. I needed archetypal psychology. There was a very interesting article in Tricycle magazine published about five or eight years ago called Spiritual Bypass. Did anybody see it? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, there are a couple of people, very knowledgeable people in the audience saw it. And the, the, the burden of the article was really interesting. The, the, the author, who was a psychotherapist, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he was. I believe he was a psychotherapist and also a meditator, realized that there were lots of people around who had been meditating for decades and gone on 10, 20, 30, 60, 90 year-long retreats and gotten into very high spiritual states. But then they came back into the world, and guess what? They hadn't done the emotional work that they needed to do to live among other people in a good way. And so they'd done a practice of kind of spiritual bypass where they'd gotten very good at getting into altered states, but they didn't know how to live a different part of their lives. 
Now, one of the many contributions that Hillman made and Jung before him is when most of us think about our maps of ourselves, you know, it's so critical what map of yourself you carry around in your head. Because, or not just your head, your head on your body. Because if you have a map that isn't adequate to the challenges you're going to face, you don't understand what's happening to you. And you need an adequate map. So most of us would say, well, the map we have is we have a physical body, we have emotions, we have a mind, we have mental. And then some of us would say we have a spiritual dimension. So it's a commonplace to say physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being. But the archetypal psychology map is different from that. And Jung was different from that. And what was the difference? They distinguished between spirit and soul. It's a critical distinction. Spirit is the part of us that wants to soar upward into the Apollonian sunlight and wants to live by great abstract principles. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Live the golden rule, you know? Whereas soul is the part of us that wants to stay close to the moist, soft being that actually experiences our lives. I want to read another poem. This one will be familiar to many of you because uh, Mary Oliver has become an iconic poet of our time. And she is a soul poet. This is called Wild Geese. Many of you know this poem. But it's very important for our purpose. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes over prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. You see, that's a soul poem. That's saying, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. So suppose the soft animal of your body loves something that the spirit part that tells you to live by the code of Islam or the Ten Commandments or whatever it is, is in some way not the thing you're supposed to love, you know? then there's this part of us that wants to be good, that wants to live by the golden rule, that wants to live by the commandment, that wants to live in the way that our society decrees that everybody live. And James Hillman said, wait a minute, that's the spirit dimension, but I want to create a psychology that focuses on the soul, that focuses on that dark, moist part of us where all our subpersonalities hang out and they may or may not agree with each other. 
Hillman likened each of us to a boarding house in which some inhabitants of the boarding house come out by day and play by the rules. Others come out and are night crawlers, and some never come out of their rooms at all. So you can imagine when you fall in love with somebody, remember a time when you fell in love with somebody and remember that first moment or those first weeks or months where you thought, oh my God, where did you come from? You know, this is so perfect. You know, we are so perfect for each other and there was a sense of total union, right? And then you get together and what happens? Not only is your boarding house having a hard time living with itself, but your two boarding houses get together and you begin to discover the night crawlers and all the other folks that come out of the woodwork. And what happens? One of several things has to happen. Either you break it off, right? Uh, or you have to expand your sense of what love is. You have to love this person in all their complexity, and they have to love you in all of yours, and the love transforms. It becomes a different thing. So that, you know, kind of gives you a sense of um, the many different forms of love. I mean, think of all the forms of love we experience, you know. We experience that romantic love. We experience erotic love, which can be romantic or may not be all that romantic. We experience love for our children, right? We experience love for our parents. We experience love for our friends. We experience love for people we work with. You know, uh, there are all these different forms of love. What, what do they have in common? What they have in common is that we are attached to what we love. We are attached. Now, what does yoga tell you to do about attachments? Break them. Let them go, right? But what does archetypal psychology tell you to do about your attachments? It tells you that in the Western tradition, the interaction of eros and psyche is a mythological structure that is fundamental to what it means to be human. So eros takes his bow, and he shoots his arrow, and he wounds Psyche. And Psyche begins to suffer. And what happens over time, according to Hillman, and according to Thomas Moore, who wrote a fabulous book called Soulmates. You know, some people think of Moore as a lesser dispensation than Hillman. But actually, Moore has been extraordinarily important to popularizing Hillman's work in ways that Hillman would never have achieved by himself, I don't think. But in any case, uh, Thomas Moore's lovely book, if you've ever struggled with relationships, read Soulmates, because it's a lovely introduction to all the different forms of soul relationships that we have. So Eros wounds Psyche, and they begin to suffer together. And in that suffering, they begin to mature and grow up. So that Psyche starts as a quite virginal figure with very high ideals. Uh, and Eros starts as, uh, as just a simple force power of love. But both of them in this relationship have to grow up together. There's a beautiful de de definition of love. I forget who said it, but 
they said that being in love is two human beings who agree to lacerate each other, you know? And so there's that. It's real, you know? There is, in love, there is this incredible attachment, and then there are all the things that happen to that attachment. So yoga teaches us to transcend it, to go up with spirit, and I'm simplifying, and soul psychology says, no, wait, go down and recognize that behind this personal experience that you are having are very ancient archetypes that are captured in myths and you are living out a version of this archetypal experience and even though this may not solve your problem it sanctifies it, it dignifies it, it gives you a sense of the background and you may be able to understand this archetypal relationship of Eros and Psyche in your life better by understanding the archetypal background. Now, Hillman was very clear that he was not on a path to a psychology of self-improvement. He wasn't trying to fix it. He didn't believe in the domination of the ego. He wasn't trying to extend the control of the ego over all these unruly members of the boarding house that each of us lives in. He was rather believing that the way we should enter another metaphor of his, the jungle of the psyche, was to enter as observers and to witness the archetypes, not trying to change them, but to contemplate and observe the movement of the archetypes through our psyche. And at one point he even said that the psyche at best becomes a janitor who banks and stokes the fires of the different archetypes within us according to our need to balance them out. I'm not, by the way, endorsing Hillman's uh, uh, psychology entirely. I found, and others have found, that I don't agree with him completely. Uh, and that what is missing for me in Hillman and archetypal psychology is the sense of oneness that Carl Jung had about the self and the sense of oneness that one also finds in Ibn Arabi and in all the really great, and in yoga, and in all the really great spirit traditions, there is this sense of a oneness within which these struggles take place. Whereas for Hillman, he wasn't interested in the oneness. He sought to relativize Jung and said that the self, which was Jung's concept of the whole being, which was a mirror of the divine, that that self was just another image. So he relativized Jung. It's called a postmodern psychology. And there's a form of despair in Hillman that I do not find particularly useful and attractive, but it's a choice. So in this postmodern period where we all live, where we get to choose our spiritual traditions, our psychological maps, our physical maps, and everything else, some people are drawn to Hillman. And I have found him astonishingly useful and continue to read him for the depth of his insights but I reject his rejection of Jung's sense of oneness, which I find in all the great spirit tradition. I'm just going to read another poem by Mary Oliver because it's so profound. Uh, I'm not sure it's to the point of anything, but that's a lot of these poems aren't to the point of anything. It gives me a break from listening to my own voice. It's called In Blackwater Woods. Some of you know this. This is just one, one, uh, one third of the poem. To live in this world, 
you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. Actually, it does relate. It's about love. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. I'll read that again. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. I have a tremor, which I'm going to demonstrate when I try to drink some water. The beauty of this tremor is it's kept me humble for many years and compared to 26 years of doing 190 retreats for people with cancer, if this is what God gives me to deal with, it is a piece of cake. And um, so I'm, I'm grateful to shake. It's not Parkinson's disease. It's not going to kill me. It's called benign essential tremor. So speaking of the cancer work, over the last um, over the last uh, 26 years at Commonweal, and also I helped in some of the early retreats at Smith Center, I've done about 190 retreats, 170 at Commonweal, and I think I don't know some larger number. Um, and um, so these weeks are the heart of my life work, and they are yoga-based, yoga, meditation, relaxation. Each person gets three massages during the week, sand tray, which is a form of expressive arts, lovely healing food, primarily uh, vegetarian, but with some fish and uh, the like, very high-quality support groups, uh, an evening of music, a uh, healing circle, um, and uh, above all, um, the formation of a circle of love which is completely transformative. It is the love in the Cancer Health Program more than anything else that heals. And in the course of that uh, retreat, I do two evenings where I talk about five areas of healing, uh, uh, of intentional healing. Intentional healing meaning you're serious about this. You, healing is natural. Intentional healing is creating an incredibly powerful intention to do everything you can to heal. Whether you live or die. Whether you live or die. Because healing is not only about healing if you get better. Healing takes place at the physical level, at the soul level, at the spirit level, at the emotional level, at the mind level. And even if one is losing ground physically at some point, some of the most transformative mental, emotional, and spiritual or soul and spirit healing that you will see can take place as people are losing ground. Um, because when people come on the Cancer Help Program, their lives have been just blown apart 
They've been completely blown apart. And they have absolutely no idea who they are now. Their stories have been broken. The story that they told themselves before about who they were and what life was going to be like has been broken. And they need to mend their story. And we can't do that for them. But we can create a surrounding of support and love in which the regenerative power of the human spirit discovers the new story. So that's what the Cancer Help Program is about, and it's the greatest work I've ever had a chance to do. So my part is to tell, talk about healing, medical treatments, complementary therapies, pain and suffering, and death and dying. And in the talks that I give on that, which is a whole talk, the core point is that if you want to live as well as you can for as long as you can, and when the time comes to die, to die well, that it helps a lot to become a healthier person living with cancer. Because if you become a healthier person living with cancer, you do everything you can organically and uh, at a soul and spirit level to create an internal milieu that is not as conducive to the development or the recurrence of the cancer. So that's the core idea there. So um, the Cancer Health Program explicitly integrates yoga and depth psychology, of which archetypal psychology is a subset. And why? Because, as I said, we need both. Because spiritual bypass won't do it. Because the spirit-soul distinction is key to um, deep intentional healing. It isn't enough to transcend. You really have to look at what that soft part of your being is experiencing and discover a new way to relate to it. And the ancients recognized this. It's only recently that we forgot. So if yoga represents the East and archetypal psychology, let's just say, represents depth psychology in the West, what do they represent? They represent two interrelated paths to knowing ourselves. And in those, inter those two paths, one of the things that's come to fascinate me is a pattern that I don't know that somebody else has pointed to, though I'm sure they have, but I haven't discovered it yet in one place, which is the intersection of wisdom, love, and will in our lives. Now, um, if you think of yoga as primarily spirit-oriented and primarily wisdom-oriented, you can think of archetypal psychology as primarily soul-oriented and primarily love-oriented in very simple terms. And wisdom and love are the two sometimes opposing, sometimes integrating forces in our lives that must either come together or fail to come together in what we actually do in the world. And that doing represents our will. So we have whatever wisdom or intelligence we have. We have whatever love we have. And when we act, we act best if we're able to bring those two together. Because as people have said, I'm trying to remember exactly who spoke, oh, it's actually Roberto Assagioli, the founder of psychosynthesis, which I'm going to talk more about. He said, you know, 
if you are dominated by love, you probably have a pretty weak will. If you are dominated by will, you may be weak in love. So Carl Jung also said this. He said, where there is uh, power, there is not love. And where there is love, there is not power. Now ask yourself this. When you fell in love, when you were deeply, totally in love, was it easy for you to work on anything? Did you find it easy to do anything else in the world? Actually not. When you're deeply in love, it's really hard to focus on anything else because that kind of love experience is very much like a drug. It is addictive and you really just want to lie around and just groove on the endorphins and transformative experience you're having. It's really hard at the height of that to do anything, you know? Whereas if you're in the wisdom place, it's a piece of cake to work, right? You know? Sure, you know, I can figure that out. I can do this. I can do that. So, but if, if you're doing, you know, there's a beautiful saying that the mind is a wonderful servant, but a bad master. If you're working from a pure intelligence, mind, wisdom, I mean, let's put them on a continuum. There's mind and there's intelligence and wisdom, right? Uh, but if people like in, on the East Coast particularly, you know, what is the, the highest praise that you hear about somebody, you hear, he's really super smart, right? So smartness is the coin of the realm in Washington and New York. That's what you hear. On the West Coast, you don't hear so much, he's really smart, you know, or she's really smart. You tend to hear, oh, wow, you know, he's very, whatever, evolved or compassionate or something. So there's a kind of a, you know, right coast, left coast divide of the, you know, of the, of the love-wisdom thing that goes on at a certain level. But when you come from that intelligence, you know, let's all be super smart, you can make terrible mistakes because you lose that compassion dimension, which is critical if the wisdom piece, the intelligence piece, doesn't get cold, right? Doesn't feel, you know? Uh, the the book, uh, the famous book by Robert Halberstam, uh, Halberstam, what was his first name? Is it Robert? No. All right, something Halberstam. Called The Best and the Brightest? David Halberstam. Right, what was it about? It was about the whiz kids, the best and the brightest, you know, McGeorge Bundy and, um, and um, what's it, the Secretary of Defense? What was his name? Yeah, McNamara, right. And how they came to make these terrible mistakes because they didn't have the compassion piece going, you know? And so you see that a lot in the corporate world and government and all kinds of places where if the focus is purely on instrumental intelligence, terrible human mistakes are made. Whereas if you come down on people who hang out on the love end of the spectrum, they're very often ineffectual. They don't get much done. They, you know, bleeding hearts, yeah. But it doesn't necessarily get a lot done. So the key to being a whole human being is to bring these two parts of ourselves, the wisdom part and the love part, together in an integrated way, expressing through a will that is powerful, intentional, and brings these things together. So here's the deal, if that's an outline. Where do you find that in yoga? Well, what is yana yoga? 
It's the yoga of wisdom, right? What is bhakti yoga? It's the yoga of love and devotion. What is karma yoga? It's the yoga of work. It's the unfolding of our destiny in the world, right? So these three, jnana yoga, bhakti yoga, and karma yoga, the yoga of uh, the mind, the heart, and the hand, the yoga of wisdom, love, and will, these three are the principal yogas in the yoga tradition. So you find right there in the heart of the yoga tradition these three, wisdom and love and how they come together and will. Take Christianity as, again, just take one example of that, uh, the, the uh, New Testament verse about um, faith, hope, and charity, but of these the greatest is charity, right? Well, Brother David Steindl-Rast, some of you know, is an astonishing uh, Christian monk. I did a seven-part videotaped spiritual biography of him that's up on the web if you ever want to look at it. He's in his 80s, and he's an amazing Catholic thinker who has blown Catholicism into the transcendent space that Hinduism occupies. So in his version of faith, hope, and, and charity, this is what he says. What is faith? Faith, he says, is not some, you know, just you believe something because you're told to believe it. No. Faith is trust in the universe. Faith is trust that the universe makes sense, that there's something fundamentally right, that you trust in the unfoldment of the universe. What is hope? Brother David says, hope is what you have when all your hopes have been dashed. Hope is what you have when all your hopes have been dashed. And what is charity? Charity, of course, is love. And what does the Bible say? Love is the greatest of these three. So if you think faith is wisdom, hope is what we hope for the unfoldment of our karma in the world. So that's the doing, the karma part. And then love is bhakti yoga. So you see there that same triad. Then just take a look at Judaism. The uh, book of Mika, very beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Old Testament or Hebrew Bible uh, line. I just have always loved this. He has shown you, O man, what the Lord requires, which is to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with the Lord thy God. He has shown you, O man, what the Lord requires which is to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with thy God. What is do justice? That's wisdom. What is love mercy? That's love. What is walk humbly with the Lord thy God? That is how we walk. That is what we do. That is walking our talk. That is the karma yoga piece of this. So again and again in these different traditions, is it an accident that one sees this triad of love, wisdom, and will reoccurring? Uh, this, uh, these traditions are um, also beautifully expressed in, um, in philosophical terms. Uh, and I just want to take three examples. I'll take, um, uh, I'll take Nietzsche, Emerson, and Rudolf Steiner. So, Nietzsche had this concept, which he outlined in his great book called The Birth of Tragedy, uh, of the relationship between the Apollonian and Dionysian aspects of life. 
Um, and he claimed in The Birth of Tragedy, this is from Wikipedia, that the tragic hero of the drama, the main protagonist, struggles to make order in the Apollonian sense of his unjust, chaotic, Dionysian fate, though he dies unfulfilled in the end. For the audience, Nietzsche claimed, this tragedy allows us to sense an underlying essence, which he called the primordial unity, which revives our Dionysian nature, which is almost indescribably pleasurable. The overarching theme was a sort of metaphysical solace or connection with the heart of creation. Um, so he felt that, uh, according to Nietzsche, uh, the man's alienation originates from his separation from his closest emotions. It originates in his Apollonian ideals, which in turn separate him from his essential connection with self. The Dionysian embrace of the chaotic nature of such experiences, that is soul, Dionysus soul, uh, the Dionysian embraces the chaotic nature of such experiences all important, not just on its own, but as it is intimately connected with the Apollonian, which is the spirit ideal. The Dionysian magnifies man, but only so far as he realizes that he is one and the same with all ordered human experience. The godlike unity of the Dionysian experience is of the utmost importance in viewing Dionysian as it is related to Apollonian, because it emphasizes the harmony that can be found within one's chaotic experience. Now, I realize this may be a little dense for some people, but just the translation is is that the Apollonian, that's the sun. The sun is the great, you know, Apollo up in the sky where everything is clear and lucid and you live according to moral commandments and you do everything right. The Dionysian is that dark soul aspect of ourself which we descend into and which is chaotic and uh, in the world of uh, Cousin Sakis, uh, which... Um, John Kabat-Zinn uh, borrowed in his wonderful work, when you're living, what he called it full catastrophe living. You know the line, full catastrophe living? That's Dionysian living. It's living with the reality that in spite of our ideals, in spite of our effort to be perfect yogis and wear orange robes and give up everything else, in spite of our ideals, we turn out to be human. And that humanity is expressed in the Dionysian. And if we don't understand the Dionysian as well as understanding the Apollonian, we are only half of us. You know, do you ever go to ashrams and you walk around and there are a lot of people who look very anemic and pale. And what has happened to them is that in their efforts to transcend to Apollonian ideals, they've cut themselves off from whole dimensions of themselves, not just ashrams. You can see it in you know, many uh, religious organizations where people, in an effort to be good and to be perfect, cut themselves off from the chaos, the full catastrophe living that is part of our soul experience. So that's what Nietzsche was pointing to, this relationship between the Apollonian and the Dionysian, this relationship between spirit and soul, and how critical it is, according to Nietzsche, the Dionysian, the soul, magnifies man. And it can only, so we can only come to our true selves 
if we bring our soul to the table as well as our spirit to the table. And only then can we act our will in a way which is integrated. And this is enormously difficult to do in a human life. It is the, the single most difficult thing to do is to integrate those dimensions of ourselves. So my last example like that is uh, uh, the, the very great um, uh, American uh, essayist and philosopher, uh, Emerson, um, who, uh, who wrote an essay on the intellect and truth. And just listen to what he was saying about 1860, you know, 140 years ago. Just listen to this. We do not determine what we think. This, by the way, is very archetypal. The archetypal, James Hillman would say, no, we can't determine. These archetypes just keep bubbling up in us. We do not determine what we think. We only open our senses, clear away as we can all obstruction from the fact, and suffer the intellect to see. That's what Hillman says. You go in like an observer into the forest of the archetypes and suffer the intellect to see. We have little control over our thoughts. We are the prisoners of ideas. They catch us up for a moment into their heaven and so fully engage us that we take no thought for the morrow, gaze like children without an effort to make them our own. By and by, we fall out of that rapture, bethink us what we have, what we have seen, uh, what we have been, what we have seen, and repeat as truly as we can what we have beheld. As far as we can recall these ecstasies, we carry away in the ineffaceable memory the result, and all men and all the ages confirm it. It is called truth. But the moment we cease to report and attempt to correct and contrive, it is not truth. So remember again, Hillman talked about the acorn theory of the soul, that it's an unfolding. Here's Emerson. All our progress is an unfolding, like the vegetable bud. You have first an instinct, then an opinion, then a knowledge, as the plant has root, bud, and fruit. Trust the instinct to the end, though you can render no reason. It is vain to hurry it. By trusting it to the end, it shall ripen into truth, and you shall know why you believe. So there's that unfolding of ourself. Even though we our reason our mind, our wisdom, can't understand it. Nonetheless, if we trust the instinct to the end, it will reveal to us why we believe. Then he finally says, and listen to this, I will not, though the subject might provoke it, speak to the open question between truth, that is wisdom, and love. I shall not presume to interfere in the old politics of the skies. Quote, the cherubim know the most, the seraphim love the most. The gods shall settle their own quarrels. See, Emerson, recognizing, knew the literature, recognized the, seraphim, the, the cherubim know the most, the seraphim love the most. The gods shall settle their own quarrels. He's not going to presume to interfere in the old politics of the skies. So there you have love and wisdom, right? And again, incarnated in the angelology of Christianity, right? You know, isn't that beautiful? It's just so beautiful. So my last example, I gave you Nietzsche, I gave you Emerson, is from the founder of the very great school of 
Western mystic school, anthroposophical uh, tradition, Rudolf Steiner. Uh, for those of you who don't know him, them, he, he created the Waldorf schools. Uh, his followers created the Waldorf schools. They created the astonishing Camp Hill movement for retarded people. Uh, he was the beginning of biodynamic horticulture. He started uh, the great cancer hospital, the great hospitals in Europe, the anthroposophical hospitals, where some of the best work in the world with cancer is done. Uh, Amrita and I went to visit uh, one of the, several of the very great ones. Um, and so here's Steiner's effort to deal with this relationship between love, wisdom, and will. Okay? The anthroposophical view is that good is found in the balance between two polar, generally evil influences on world and human uh, evolution. The two spiritual adversaries endeavor to tempt and corrupt humanity. These are often described through their mythological embodiments, Lucifer and his counterpart, Araman, which have both positive and negative aspects. Lucifer is the light spirit, which plays on human pride and offers the delusion of divinity, but also motivates creativity and spirituality. Araman is the dark spirit, which tempts human beings to deny their link to the divine and to live entirely on the material plane, but also stimulates intellectuality and technology. Both figures, these are mythic figures, exert a negative effect on humanity when their influence becomes misplaced or one-sided, yet their influences are necessary for human freedom to unfold. Each human being has the task to find a balance between these opposing influences, and each is helped in this task by the mediation of the representative of humanity, also known as the Christ being, a spiritual entity who stands between and harmonizes the two extremes. And then there's this beautiful quote from Steiner. Love is for the world what the sun is for outer life. No soul could live if love departed from the world. It is the moral sun of the world. To spread love over the earth to the greatest degree possible, to promote love, that alone is wisdom. When we practice love, cultivate love, creative forces pour into the world. Besides love, there are two other powers in the world, might, which is will, and wisdom. God is uttermost love, unalloyed love, is born, as it were, out of the substance of love. God is pure love, not supreme wisdom, not supreme might. Love is the foundation of whatever is created. Progress is obtained through wisdom and strength. You see, again and again and again, you find these three forces, love, wisdom, and will. You find them again, you find them in yoga, you find them in archetypal psychology, you find them in Nietzsche's concepts of the Apollonian and the Dionysian, you find them in Everson, who's not willing to try to settle the politics of the skies, right? And you find them in Steiner, who takes a position. Emerson refuses to take a position between love and wisdom. Steiner says, no, God is love. And Steiner's position is the one that you find echoed in most of the great spiritual traditions, in Christianity, as we saw, of these three, the greatest of love, and also in the Bhagavad Gita. Let's come back to yoga for a minute. In the twelfth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna, who is the disciple of Krishna, who is the incarnation of the Lord, is asking Krishna, 
of those who love you as the Lord of love, ever present in all, and those who seek you as the nameless, formless, formless reality, which way is sure and swift, love or knowledge? That's love or wisdom, right? What does Krishna say? He says, for those who set their hearts on me and worship me with unfailing devotion and faith, the way of love leads sure and swift to me. And then he speaks of wisdom. Those who seek the transcendent reality, unmanifested without name or form, beyond the reach of feeling and of thought, with their senses subdued and mind serene, and striving for the good of all beings, they too will verily come to me. Yet hazardous and slow is the path to the unrevealed, difficult for physical man to tread. But they for whom I am the goal supreme, who do all work renouncing self from me and meditate on me with single-hearted devotion, these I will swiftly rescue from the fragments cycle of birth and death to the fullness of eternal life. This is when the tremor gets hard. You can't open things. Um, and then his final line, Dearest to me are those who seek me in faith and love as life's eternal goal. They go beyond death to immortality. So you see, you have in Christianity, you have in the Bhagavad Gita, you have in Steiner, they take a position. Whereas Emerson does not, and there are other traditions that focus on the wisdom side over love. So take the Stoics, for example. You know, the Stoics really believed that love uh, was an, an illness, uh, that it attacked, in some of the critics of love, say, look, that the problem with love is it attacks the body, the mind, and the heart. It attacks you at all three levels. And, you know, so it can feel like an illness. It can feel like an addiction, right? Uh, and so some of them view it that way. Um, but again and again, you find others uh, like Dante. Uh, uh, you know, Dante learned a lot from the Sufis. And again, the, uh, his whole perspective, he, 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 he saw Beatrice, what, three times in his life, right? And yet that fired a love for this physical woman that was so strong that it led him to the divine and one of the most extraordinary creations in the history of literature. Um, and uh, so one of the things that Dante... and Dante was part of a group called Les Fideli dell'Amore, the faithful of love. And one of the things that this group of people understood was that when you fall in love with a physical person, and you get overwhelmed by the power of the experience, that if you understand that what you are loving is not only the physical person, that that person represents an archetype. And if you can consciously be aware of that relationship, then the physical person can take you to the edge at which you learn to love the divine. That's the, and you think again and again of when this has happened. Rumi and Shams, you know, Rumi, the other great Sufi poet, you know, he was a great wisdom teacher. He was a scholar, respected everybody, thought he was great. Walking in the market one day, this crazy wild man comes up to him and asks him a question, who's greater, Muhammad and some other dude who was, you know. And so Rumi says, you know, obviously Muhammad. And, and so Shams, this crazy wild man, gave him an answer that said, well, what about this? So Rumi, according to different traditions, either fell off his horse or fainted or whatever, and he and Shams went off and lived in a house together for two years and did nothing but talk to each other. 
So ultimately what happened was that Shams was either killed by some of Rumi's students or disappeared or whatever. And what happened? What happened was Rumi's heart broke open. And out of the breaking open of Rumi's heart came some of the greatest love poetry in the history of humanity. And you find that again and again and again, which is that out of our hearts being broken open, we are transformed. So going back to the Cancer Help Program, what has happened to the people who come in the Cancer Help Program? They have had their hearts broken, completely broken. And their future depends on whether they can understand that brokenheartedness as not only a tragedy, but an opening. You know, Dame Edith Sitwell said of William Blake, he was cracked, but it was through the crack that the light came. You know, why is it that in the, uh, there's a, uh, a rabbinical debate about why in the Old Testament it said that God laid the letters of the Torah on the heart and they said, why on the heart and not in the heart? And the answer was, it was not until your heart was broken that the letters of the Torah could fall into the heart and you could understand them from that broken-hearted space. So one of the great truths of yoga is precisely this, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, the beginning of the second book, the acceptance of our suffering as an aid to transformation, the study of great wisdom teachings, and complete surrender to the divine power inside each of us. These three things are yoga in practice. Not asanas, not breathing practices, not meditation, but the acceptance of our suffering as the path to our transformation, the study of the great wisdom teachings that explain this to us, and then complete surrender to the divine force that is in each of us. These three things are yoga in practice. So you see there's a kind of a weaving together of these traditions that if you follow, um, if you follow these issues of love, wisdom, and will, you can find them again and again. What did Freud say was the key to life from all his psychology? Love and work, right? What did Rollo May say? Love and will, right? Uh, what did Jung say? I mentioned it already. The inverse relationship between love and power. Uh, the great struggle is to figure out how to synthesize them. They do not easily fit together. The, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, my religion is kindness. You know? Um, Jack Cornfield's beautiful book, and he's an insight meditation teacher out in California. He wrote a book called A Wise Heart, right? That's what you want, is a wise heart. But man is at heart. Man is at heart. Wisdom counsels us to be good. The heart counsels us to love. How do you put them together? How do you do that? That's the work of a lifetime. I'm going to spend a little more time because I think maps are so useful. I mentioned Roberto Assagioli's psychosynthesis and 
His map is one of the simplest maps around to help you understand archetypal psychology, even though he wasn't formally an archetypal psychologist. So Asajoli, he created a circle, and he said the psyche or the self is a circle. And in the middle of the circle is a point from which you observe the world. And then you have a lower unconscious, a middle unconscious, and an upper unconscious. And scattered through this lower, middle, and upper unconscious are your different subpersonalities that go like planets around the sun of that witness place in the middle. And so you, if you, it's very useful if you want to begin this process to make a list of your subpersonalities. So I might say, I'm a father, you know, I work at Commonweal, you know, I uh, am a brother, I am a husband, you know. I am, uh, you know, crazy, freelance, half-assed philosopher, whatever it is, you know. Uh, you know, you, you can make a list of these things. And then a beautiful practice is to write each of them on a separate street of paper, put a blank piece of paper in the middle in a circle, and then practice the, the blank piece shows for, it stands for the witness point, and then practice stepping in and out of your different subpersonality. And if you do that, you begin from a physical sense, the stepping in and out, to recognize the reality that your boarding house, to use uh, Hillman's phrase, is filled with these different subpersonalities, right? And if you get to know the subpersonalities, because they don't agree with each other, that's when you struggle with your conscience or whatever it is. So when you get to know them better, then according to the psychosynthesis tradition, you can do three, four things. You can name them, give them names. You can claim them. You can recognize them as parts of yourself. You can tame them. You can begin to get them to work together. And then as they work together better, you can aim them toward your life purpose. So you, you start with this chaos, and then you try to name them, to claim them, to tame them, and to aim them. It's a very super simplified version. Well, and then some of them come from the lower unconscious, which is drives and sexuality, and some from the middle unconscious, which is what we're, we can become aware of if we want to. And some of them come from the higher unconscious, which we're unaware of, just like we're unaware of the lower unconscious. And you can get just as neurotic from suppressing an angelic dimension of yourself as you can from suppressing a sexual drive. So the whole idea of psychosynthesis is to name, claim, tame, and aim the different dimensions of yourself as you become aware of them. Well, where this fits with archetypal psychology, remember the archetypes are like the wise old man, the wise old woman, Eros, Psyche, you know, all the different archetypes that you can imagine. And according to Jung, according to lots of these depth psychologists, behind each subpersonality is a complex, and behind each complex is an archetype. So you can see, when you began to understand, grasp, that you have these different uh, dimensions of yourself, you can begin to understand that, for example, the father part of you, there's a father archetype. The brother archetype, there's a brother, right? The worker, there's a worker. And so you can begin not only to see your subpersonalities as your own personal struggles, but in archetypal terms, you can begin to look at what are the patterns. As Carl Jung said, he asked himself at a critical point in his life, did he know what myth he was living? And he realized he did not know what myth he was living. And that began the most creative period of his life when he went down into something near insanity and created the Red Book and then 
did the work that formed the greatest part of his life thereafter. Boy, there's a lot more that I could say to you, but I'm beginning to think I've talked almost enough. So I'll, st I'll end with uh, a couple of poems. This is from Rilke, from the Book of Hours. God talks to each of us as he creates us, then walks with us silently out of the night. But the words spoken to us before we start those cloudy words are these. Sent forth by your senses, go to the very edge of your desire. Invest me. Back behind the things grows as fire, so that their shadows lengthened will always and completely cover me. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Only press on. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself be cut off from me. Nearby is that country known as life. You will recognize it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. She who reconciles the ill-matched threads of her life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth, it's she who drives the loudmouths from the hall and clears it for a different celebration where the one guest is you. In the softness of evening, it's you she receives. You are the partner of her loneliness, the unspeaking center of her monologues. With each disclosure, you encompass more, and she stretches beyond what limits her to hold you. Thank you very much.